Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. If you isolate a portion of scripture from the narrative of the Bible's story, you can misunderstand the meaning. And if we misunderstand the meaning because we have lifted a text out of its context, well, it's not only going to complicate your life, but it can trigger our unregenerate friends because we're not really explaining the text the way that it was intended. There is a science of Bible interpretation. It is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutic principles, there are many, and one of those hermeneutical principles is is that we never lift a, a word, a a phrase, a verse, a sentence out of the Bible, and then give it an interpretation without understanding the context, without understanding the author's intent. People do that all the time. Probably one of the more famous passages of Scripture that is misinterpreted, in fact, you'll see the culture talking about this one often, and that is Matthew 7, verse number 1, judge not lest you be judged. Well, they use it wrongly because they do not understand the context or the author's intent when he wrote that passage for us. And that is the danger of isolating text. By the way, it's also why some Christians struggle with many of the Bible's declarations. They will hear a verse or a sentence or somebody will uh, slap a, a verse on them. And again, without the context, it can be harsh, it can be unkind, it can be misunderstood, and of course it can be misapplied. I want to share with you one of the most dangerous passages in God's Word that you could misapply if you take it just as the phrase is given without understanding the context in which the author wrote it. The author is Paul, and he talks about this idea of being worthless. It is one of those Bible declarations. Now, you can imagine If somebody came up to you, or if you said to somebody, and I'm sure that you wouldn't, but if somebody said to you that you are a worthless human being, well, that sounds harsh on the face of it. It is an unkind thing to say, and it really needs context. But the truth is, the Bible says that about you and me. That is one of the Bible's declarations about humanity, and that is where we have to be careful when we talk about these things. I mean, just imagine for a moment of lifting Paul's words about us from his context, isolating it from the whole counsel of God. Well, it would be devastating. And so what did Paul mean? Why is such a harsh perspective on humanity essential? for our ultimate good. Yes, there is irony here. And I would say that before we can ever experience good news, there has always has to be bad news. If we don't understand the bad news, then we won't see the need for the good news. And of course, we will never experience the good news. And so I want to take a look at why Paul said, it's in Romans chapter 3, verse number 12, when he declared himself and the rest of humanity as worthless. You see, part of the problem with Paul's pronouncement is that we've lost our toughness, along with a dose of myopia that we cannot see far off. We can only see what is in the present. We can only see what is in front of us. We call that instant gratification. And because of our myopic tendencies and not understanding the long game, uh, not, st- uh, not understanding the end of life and also eternity, 
We don't think about those things. And we don't realize that some of the things that we're doing now will be detrimental and even eternally tragic if we don't have an eschatological vision for our lives. And so with myopia, there is also this toughness that we have lost. And so when you say things like you are worthless, appropriately, kindly, and within context, it will still flummox many people, trigger most of them, and there will probably be some kind of retaliatory impulse. We live in an era where sensitivity is at an all-time high. Now, what I'm not suggesting is that anyone should be harsh or unkind to any other person. I see that too often within the Christian culture, especially with the political climate in which we live. The culture is unkind in any climate, and I would expect that, but the Christian community is too harsh, too unkind, too snarky, too sarcastic. I am not saying that we should discount or dismantle any courage that we might have, but there is a way of communicating hard and strong truth but we don't have to strap it on to a a hatchet or tie it to the end of a spear. There is a way of communicating hard truth uh, that is going to bother some people, but we can say it in such a way that it doesn't have to be as mean-spirited as many of us have been over the past many years. And so when you say something like, well, we're all worthless, well, on its face, it's going to it's going to ring hard. It's going to sit heavy on someone's soul. But there are aspects to our lives that need clarity. And God's Word cuts through the fog of our minds, and it pricks our prideful hearts, and it helps us to see what we cannot see otherwise. And some of God's words and His descriptors, they will cut against the grain of self-actualized souls who are beholding to ideologies as the self-esteem movement as one example. By the way, the self-esteem, if you flip the word around, you will understand what it means. It means to esteem yourself, and that is the problem. The more that we esteem ourselves, the more that we fall in love with ourselves, it's just going to create that sensitivity. We're going to create a world that we will not permit anyone to penetrate with any kind of unkindness because it is damaging, as they say, to our self-esteem. Well, imagine Paul's declaration from Romans 3.12. Let that penetrate your hermetically sealed world, your safe space. Well, our culture cannot. They cannot receive that kind of treatment from anyone, including the Bible. But we have to go there, and we have to talk about these things. When I was a child, it was common to tell someone that they were going to hell if they did not trust God. It was not harsh to say it that way, assuming that their motives were pure and and proper or as pure as they could be. And it was a compassionate appeal. This is what I was saying earlier, that the bad news always precedes the good news. As a matter of fact, that is how I was regenerated by God. I was working at a machine shop in 1984 in North Carolina, and as it was, uh, at, at the lunch break, uh, every day we tend to talk about a series of subjects, and religion was always one of those topics. 
On one particular day, we were talking about the Bible, and uh, some of my friends asked me, they said, Rick, what you think about the Bible? Well, I did not know the Lord, and I knew virtually nothing about the Bible. I had seen the Ten Commandments, the movie with Charleston Heston, and I did like it. I did go to Sunday school for a little bit. Uh, when I was a child, so I was somewhat familiar with Daniel in the Den of Lions and Noah and his ark, but that was pretty much the extent of it. And so when they asked me what I thought about the Bible, I said that I think the Bible is a good book to pattern your life after, but I do not believe everything that is in it. It is too far-fetched, and so I just don't believe all of it. Well, we went on with the discussion, and after lunch, I was standing at my machine, and my boss man, his name is uh, Ricky Price. I do not know if he's living today or not. I haven't talked to him in multiple decades. Not even sure if he knows his story or if he remembers it, or especially this part of the story, what I'm about to share with you. I was standing at my machine, and Ricky came up to me, and he said, Do you believe what you said back there at the break table? And I said, Yeah, I believe that. He said, You're going to hell. That was it. He said it just like that. Now, again, in my day, many decades ago, that was not a harsh or unkind thing to say, and I did not take it harshly or unkindly. I knew that he cared, and he was just making a matter-of-fact statement according to his belief system. And again, we could say those things back then, but not now. Well, that set me on a pathway, and I'll not finish that story here. I can share that at another time, but at the end of the road, God regenerated me a month or so after that. And by hearing that bad news, it led to the good news because without him telling me that bad news, I would have gone on in my drunken stupor, in my blindness, groping for the walls in the dark, not knowing the path, futile in my thinking, and having no idea that I was more broken than I could ever imagine. And then index forward 50 years, and now what do we have? A psychologized culture that is highly sensitive and easily offended if you tell them anything that stirs up a negative evaluation about themselves. I mean, even the Christian resists negative assessments. All of our personality tests tell us how uniquely wonderful we are. Well, you are a lion, you are a fox, you are a beaver, and you are a collie. Well, praise God. And here are all the wonderful attributes of the fox and the lion and the beaver and the collie. We cannot help but flatter ourselves while rejecting anything that sounds demeaning. I took a personality test from the Bible. It said, you are worthless. And then I answered another question, and it said, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's in Isaiah 64, 6. If you want to take a, one of those personality tests, take one from the Bible. It will not slap you on the back and affirm you. Uh, it will not meet your highest expectations of yourself, and, and it will not uh, fill your self-esteem cup. I mean, it will plummet you to the place that we all need to be because we need to have a sober self-awareness of who we are, or we'll all go around as blind men groping for the walls in the dark. The culture has drifted so far from the shore of truth that it cannot understand God or His Word. It is so obscure to them. 
They pull the scraps of the Bible that they do know through a psychologized filter to soothe the soul with palatable relabeling. I mentioned earlier about uh, Matthew 7, verse number 1, that they pull through their psychologized filter and they use it like a hammer to keep you from judging them. When in truth, one of the most charitable, kind things that we can do for each other is judge each other. Now, if you're uncomfortable with that word, let me use another, that we need to assess one another, that we need to come alongside one another to help each other to understand one another. You cannot do sanctification alone. You cannot mature by yourself. You cannot fulfill the two great commandments of loving God and loving others in isolation. We need each other. And as you read the New Testament, there are well over 30 one another's in the New Testament. There is a strong chorus of coming alongside each other to help each other. And we cannot do that without assessing each other. And I'm talking about charitably, not harshly. I'm talking about kindly, not with a mean spirit. Definitely not talking about a self-righteous attitude that looks down on another person as though we are not fellow sinners ourselves. But the culture cannot handle that. The culture's drift is why Paul's words in Romans 3.12 sound like a horrible accusation that threatens how we prefer to think about ourselves. If you listen to Paul's words in the raw, it will jar any postmodern psychologized mind. And guess what? It's supposed to. It's supposed to jolt us from our hypersensory slumber. And you will see this as you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you study the language of Jesus and how he communicated with people. I mean, today they would say that Jesus was a shock jock, but that is not who he was. And his intent was never to be mean-spirited, but he understood that this was a, his generation was a dull generation, that their eyes were shut, that their, their eyes were blind. He is the one that talked about them groping for the wall as blind men, being dull of hearing. And so that's why what he said was so shocking to so many people as one man came back and said, never a person has spoke like this man. His language was so counter to the culture, and that is exactly where we are today. One of the purposes of God's word is to knock us down, which Paul called rebuke or reprove in 2 Timothy 3.16. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says God's word was given to us, and it is profitable for four things in this sequential order. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, as Paul said, for correction, and for running in righteousness. And look at that linkage there in that chain, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And that's how it happens. That's how it happened to me at my machine. In 1984, in the machine shop, when Ricky, Top, uh, uh, Ricky Price said uh, that you're going to hell, he was teaching me. He was, he was telling me what God's Word says, and, and that teaching knocked me down. It put me on my backside. It re he rebuked and reproved me. One of the best things is—well, that is the best thing that ever happened to me as far as the process to salvation. And so after you hear teaching, it knocks you down. It reproves you. But then God doesn't leave us down. He corrects us. 
like setting a bone. The bad news precedes the good news. And then the Lord set the bone of my soul, and then he regenerated me. And now I have been on the training path of righteousness for all of these years. And so you might want to brace yourself, particularly if you have one of those psychologized minds. Are you ready? Here's what Paul said, the full verse, 312 of Romans. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He begins that sentence with the word all, as people have said too many times to where it's not even funny anymore. The word all in the Greek means all. It is a universal word that encompasses every human that has ever walked on earth, walking on earth, and will walk on earth. All have turned aside together. All have become worthless. To the secular ear, his words are repulsive, misguided, and threatening, not to mention archaic. Paul's words are on the wrong side of history, as they might say. That's catchy, that's cute, and that is 100% wrong. To the untrained Christian ear, his words sound eh, about the same. You see, both demographics, the non-Christian and the modernized Christian, they are beholding to the self-esteem gospel. Neither group can dare think poorly about themselves. They will tell you that it is damaging to their psyche. That's why they conjured up the self, a self-esteem movement, so that they can think highly of themselves, esteem themselves. Now, let's just take a break for a few moments, and let me ask you a rhetorical question. Do you think the culture esteems itself enough already? I'm sure that it can esteem itself more, but they are already high on self-esteem. If you are told repeatedly through a zillion means that negative evaluations harm your soul, then you have no choice but to deny Paul's words, reinterpret what he intended. This is why isolating the text, and they will pull it out and reinvent it. And they, they do that reinterpretation while embracing the culture's version of self-generated, self-actualized goodness. There is no question that Paul's words are disconcerting and even discouraging. Now, I would say during that season when God regenerated me that it was disconcerting. When Ricky Price told me that I was going to hell, yes, that was disconcerting. When you hear the bad news from the doctor, it is disconcerting and even discouraging. I mean, what could it be otherwise? If we insulate ourselves from all bad news, then, well, that is some form of self-suicide. Well, suicide is self-suicide. That's some form of suicide. And that's what our culture cannot bear. But it, it is the kindness of God, and it is the kindness of good friends to give you disconcerting news that is discouraging. Because if they don't, then, well, you really don't have a friend. You don't have someone that loves you. And this disconcerting news is why isolating these words from the rest of God's word is unwise, because if all the culture had is this sentence, then we will be permanently, eternally knocked down. And so we have to contextualize Paul's language between Genesis 
and revelation. If we do not, the doctrine of self-esteem will trigger the undiscerning soul, whether it is a, a cultureite or a Christian who has imbibed too much on the culture's doctrines. The culture demands that we reject anything contrary to a positive mental attitude. PMA is the acronym. Now, I was a PMA advocate, just to add a little more color to my regeneration story. I had read many books. I had been in a, a, a couple of multi-level marketing organizations, and typically those multi-level ar- uh, marketing uh, organizations, they teach you how wonderful you are, that you can accomplish all things, that you can go, fight, and win, that you are somebody. I'm okay. You're okay. A, the power of positive thinking uh, is another one. The magic of thinking big is another one. And there are a zillion of them. And I read a lot of them. And so I was pumped up to the brim. But there was still something inside of me that was gnawing and nagging. This internal awkwardness of my soul. This, this shame that I had. This internalized guilt that I carried with me. A discontentment and dissatisfaction with life. And the more insatiable I tried to... Uh, fill my soul with these PMA books. It never ultimately worked. All I could do is psych myself up, chest bump with somebody, go out, fight, and win, and then inevitably come back, and they need to be filled up again. I did not know about the water that, water that you drink that Christ gives that satisfies where you'll never thirst again. We call our sports teams, for example, uh, or we cannot call our sports team, as, as an example, the Indians or the Redskins, because it's detrimental to our psyche. So they say, we got to have that positive mental attitude. I have already talked in other uh, chapters in this book here that I'm doing. It's called Loving Me, the Uh, Loving Me, The Hidden Agenda of Self-Esteem. And I talked about how the Christian bases his view of himself on the Imago Dei, the the made-in-the-image-of-God concept, rather than the culture's doctrine of self-esteem. You see, if if you place your understanding of yourself on the Imago Dei, then you recognize that there is value in who you are, not because of who you are, but because of who made you. And what we're doing as Christians is that we have a whole, a wholeness perspective, a, a satisfying view of ourselves because we recognize the painter who made the painting. It's not about pumping up the painting and so the painting can have an overinflated ego. No, it's always about the painter who made the painting. The painting is only valuable because of the painter. And so when you say that painting is a Rembrandt, then wow. That painting is valuable, but that's because it was painted by Rembrandt. And so we don't think along the lines of the self-esteem movement. We think along the lines of the Imago Dei, and that makes all the difference in the world. The image of God, presuppositional worldview, keeps our thoughts aligned and in tune with God's Word. The self-esteem worldview leaves the insatiable soul with the culture's solutions to wholeness like reading PMA books like a chain smoker. Now, I have an article here at our website, lifeovercoffee.com, and the title of it is called The Mystery and the Misunderstanding About Being Worthless. Now, inside that article, I have an infographic I'm going to try to 
communicate that with you. Uh, through the video and the podcast to help you to understand it. But I would encourage you to go to lifeovercoffee.com and look at this infographic. It's free. It's yours. You can have it. We have more than 130 of them uh, in our store. If you go to the footer of our website, you'll see a link, and it says shareables. It means exactly what it says. You can share them. Share them with yourself and then share them with 1,000 of your closest friends. I want you to have them. I want you to use them for your benefit, and also as you care for others. But this infographic talks about presuppositional truth. And what that means is, is that everyone wears a unique pair of glasses. It's like these glasses that I wear here. Let's say, for example, that these glasses had a a colored lens on them, blue, for example. Then everything that I see in life would be blue. And if you had a pair of glasses that were rose-colored, Well, everything that you see in life would be rose-colored, and that will become your, your presupposition is your interpretive filter. You see, there are no neutral facts or brute facts, as Cornelius Van Til taught us in his presuppositional apologetic teaching. Nobody comes to a fact as though it is neutral and it has no interpretation. No, everybody supplies their own interpretation to the fact that they are observing. I can hold up our handy-dandy, beautiful 28-ounce tumbler here, sea glass with our wonderful logo on it, Conversations for Transformation, and our mark here, right here in the middle of it. Everybody looking at this will come to a different way of talking about this because each person has their own commentary. Each person has a unique interpretation. This tumbler here is not neutral. We supply an interpretation based on who we are, how life has affected us, how we see life, and then we will supply that commentary. And so the world creates the commentary on what it believes. And so when you say worthless to the worldly person, they're going to see that through some very dark glasses, and they will become trigger-happy because you have invaded their safe space and you have damaged their psyche, so they say. If you say this to a Christian who understands the Bible, they would say, yes, that's who I was before God regenerated me. I was worthless. All of my righteousnesses were as filthy rags. I needed God to save me and and praise God. He did. If our presuppositional window is God's word, we will have ultimate clarity, keeping us from derailing over the secular systems. Because self-esteem is a secular system, a doctrine born outside of God's Word, all of their solutions, all of their commentary, all of their interpretations are worldly. Here's the key idea. Our starting point determines our ending point, making understanding presuppositional truth essential. Now, it is important when you're doing the work of discipleship or evangelism that you really you really have to get a hold as much as you can. Draw a bead on understanding their presuppositional window, because you may think that you're saying one thing, but they're hearing another because there are no neutral facts. And you can talk about the fact of being worthless, but two people hearing that will interpret it differently 
If you add three people in the mix, then you'll have three different interpretations. And so presuppositional truth, having a biblical filter, that is absolutely essential. Now, if they don't have that, then you want to lovingly, carefully, patiently walk them to that place to where they can exchange their windows from a secular presuppositional lens to a biblical presuppositional lens. Now, with some people, obvious, and I'm sure it's obvious to you, that you would not go up to them and say that you are worthless because, in the words of Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth, and they will not be able to handle that truth. And so that's why we want to be careful when we communicate some things about God's Word, because some people are just not ready for that. And so you want to build that relational bridge to them so that you can ultimately take it to them in such a way that they will receive it and not react or go into a spasm because God's word will do that. God's word has a radically different starting point. But when it comes to being worthless, the starting point is not Romans 3:12 where we learn about our worthlessness. The starting point goes way back to Genesis 1:27. In that passage, or in that verse, rather, we see that God made humanity in the image of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let us make man in our image, the text says. And then the next big thing on the calendar of human events was the marring of God's creation in Genesis 3.6. This is where Adam and Eve chose to walk away from God which led humanity into a worthless condition. And again, we see that in Romans chapter 3. The theological term for a worthless condition is called total depravity, pointing to the complete brokenness, spiritually and physically. When I talk about total depravity, that we are broken inside and out. Body and soul is totally depraved. Now, when I say total depravity, it doesn't mean that we, are, we have sinned as much as we possibly can or we have committed every sin imaginable. No, it just means that we're broken through and through, body and soul. We have the potential of sinning way more than we ever have, and so we haven't reached the ceiling, and nobody has, to what they could do. But everybody is equal as far as being totally depraved. The goal of Paul's language was not to damage a fragile psyche, but it was to enlighten the psyche, the soul, while pointing the sad soul to the hope of the gospel. Worthlessness is the condition of every person. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Let's suppose that you bought a brand new vehicle and drove it off the showroom floor. The car is perfect and beautiful in every way. In those first few months, you vacuum it all the time or have it vacuumed. You wash it all the time or have it washed. You love that car and you're taking care of it. You change the oil on the regular. You have all the maintenance checks made. Well, let's index forward 30 years. That brand new automobile that you drove off the showroom floor sits in a junkyard. It's worn out. It's broken down. Guess what? <laughs> It has become worthless, to use Paul's language. What was once a fantastic vehicle built by a master craftsman is now in the salvage yard of life. 
You pass by, you look at the car, you shake your head, and you say, it has become worthless. You're not mean about it. You're not being harsh. You're not being unkind. You just state in a fact. You look at it, and it's quite obvious what it is. It's not what it was. Now, if a postmodern car could talk, it would say, you can't say that about me. I'm not worthless. I'm somebody. You are damaging my car esteem. Well, you would respond, think about, uh, think what you want about yourself, but you have become worthless. You have been, you, you may have been something once upon a time, but you're not that any longer. And if you want to rise from this junkyard, it's not going to happen by the mirage of self-generated value and self-reliant means and self-spaces and trying to protect yourself from all silence is violence and, and words are violence too. No, what you need is outside intervention. Well, the master craftsman chose to make us in his image, as we saw in Genesis 1, 27. We also read again in, in Psalm 139.14 about his work creating humanity. But it, the Bible also talks about humanity when it took a devilish turn in the Garden of Eden. Humanity landed in the junk heap of life. We were wallowing in our own blood. I'm talking about Ezekiel. Our condition is so bad that any good thing we do is filthy and marred, going back to Isaiah 64, verse number 6. We became worthless. There is no other way to think about our condition prior to Christ's salvation. In between God creating us in His image and Christ regenerating us and being born again, there is no more succinct and clear an accurate way to think about our condition. The secular person puts his psychological fingers in his ears while saying unkind things to anyone who would make such a horrible declaration. Our unregenerate reality is repulsive to some Christians, too. They love those personality tests because they will, they will uh, uh, slap themselves on the back Talk ad infinitum about what kind of animal or, or tree or whatever it is that they are. They refuse to see themselves the way that God does, post-fall and pre-redemption. They misunderstand and miserably misapply God's word in the most practical ways. To think that we are something is repelling to Christ from our lives. It's disinviting Christ. It's unfriending Christ from our lives because he came for the sick, the broken, the contrite, the humble, the self-aware, the worthless. There is no doubt. It would be the most horrible of tragedies in any of us if we were stuck in Romans 3.12. I am not suggesting that. Don't be stuck in worthlessness. To be worthless and left in that state, that is a desperate, dangerous, depressing condition, which explains why the culture is extreme, competing, tromping all over each other in the pursuit of creating something, anything, that gives them a fleeting feeling of self-importance. For those of you who watch sports, you see this all the time. 
as these prima donna athletes, they do all kinds of stunts after a great play to create a little buzz that will pump up their inflatable egos through the next 24-hour news cycle. It's a shallow and sad 15 seconds of fame. The Christian does not have to compete in such nonsensical exercises to fill a fictitious love cup because he knows what Paul said in Romans 3.12 is the condition and the position that sets him up for God's supernatural intervention. Christ came for the broken. To use Paul's language, he is looking for a few worthless beggars. God is interested in totally depraved people who name it and claim it, not those who reject it. That kind of humble seeker is ready for grace. He knows God made him in his image. He was a nice painting some time ago. Someone came along and, and marred the Imago Dei. The, the painting became worthless. But behind all that, there was something worth redeeming, a person made in the image of God. And God must come along. He must restore him to the beauty that only his grace can provide. The bad news does not damage his psyche. The bad news positions him. For the best news, a sad soul will ever hear. The Christian is exempt from a sin-centered, worm-centered, worthless theology, which is what would happen if Romans 3.12 was his irreconcilable, unending condition. And some people actually think that, say that sometimes, that what you have here is a sin-centered theology, a worm-centered theology. No, it's not true. I mean, it's only half of the story. It is the first half of the narrative. It is our condition before redemption. But yeah, if you stay there, and if that's what you talk about all the time, well, then you probably have a sin-centered person, but that is not the testimony of Scripture. That would be the testimony of somebody that doesn't understand the whole counsel of God. A worthless vehicle with no means of escaping the junkyard is in a horrible place, and that vehicle will be in that worthless state for the rest of its rusting life. The believer knows the rest of the story. He pleads for the second birth. He pled for the second birth because his first one landed him in the junkyard of life. The God-rejector stays a totally depraved, worthless sinner with no hope of extricating himself from his iniquity. He may listen to the words of Jesus in John 3, 7, you must be born again, but he won't budge. Now, this is where we want to be careful. This is where Christians can be unkind. So many of my kind have been unkind because they will say things like that, that you are a totally depraved, worthless sinner with no hope of extricating yourself from your iniquity. If you say that to a close friend where you have a relational bridge built to that close friend, as Ricky Price did in his most blunt way, you're going to hell, well, then that's not wrong. But it's so sad to see these things happening on socials and other places where people are so unkind in how they communicate. And some of them sanitize what they say or they wrap what they say in some kind of weird pseudo-spirituality because this is what the Bible says. 
But again, how we deliver the message does make a difference, and we need to read the room. And if we don't have the discernment to read the room, then we will say the right things the wrong way, and it will not have the effect. Now, if the person's goal, and unfortunately many people's goal is just to throw the truth out there like they were uh, thrusting a shot put or hoisting a javelin, that's not how Christians should be carrying the truth to other people. And so we don't water down the truth. We don't round the corners off of it. We don't flatter people, but we do read the room. And we have, we'd have to have discernment as we talk to people about God's Word because God's Word is so counter to anything and everything in this culture. And we have to understand that. Because you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, and we want to do it with utmost care, kindness, consideration, compassion, with all the courage that's necessary and the determination and the perseverance, because it's either heaven or hell, and we want to be passionate and kind as we communicate the message of Christ. And part of the message of Christ is they're totally depraved worthless sinners with no hope of extricating themselves from their iniquity. Regeneration is something the secularists will never do. They can't save themselves from themselves. They will try all the self-esteem books in the world. They'll read every PM, PMA book that is available. They will flatter each other. They will carve out more and more safe spaces. They will isolate themselves. They will cancel anyone who is different from them. It will not work. Truth will always prevail. Like a rock, it will stand, and there is nothing they can do about it. They can just fling themselves against it, and it will break them in a thousand pieces. And God will leave them to their own devices, which is why the self-esteem doctrine is readily available and appreciated for those without hope. What would you expect them to do? I understand it. That's why I'm careful as I try to communicate these things to them because they can't sit on a dunce seat in the corner and say, I don't know the answer to straighten out our, our uh, psychologized self. And so they create something. Those who reject creationism create evolution. Those who reject the Bible create self-esteem. I understand it. But the second birth is the perfect antidote to rescue anyone from the junkyard of life. God will restore you to what you were supposed to be, a regenerated Imago Dei. Being born again does more than restore us to what we should be. It guarantees no more reversals. For the Christian, the whole story is a three-part narrative. We call it creation, fall, and redemption. Part one of our story, creation. God made us in his image in Genesis 1.27. Part two, the fall. We became worthless because of sin. Genesis 3.6 and following. And then uh, part three, redemption. God restores us by his power. And this is what Christ did by coming to earth and dying for our sins and rising, what we call the resurrection. Regeneration is an unusual turn of events, all brought to you by the power and the grace of God, not by a twisted self-esteem doctrine that sends you into a hopeless maze of artificial feel-good so you can psych yourself up to be something you can never be 
outside of divine mercy and intervention. God contextualizes our hope in His power rather than secular contrivances. Salvation gives hope and practical help to the desperate soul. If you're born again, you're on the path. You have been, you've heard the teaching. You have been rebuked. You have been knocked on your backside. And then you have been corrected. The bone has been set. Now you are experiencing wholeness and you're on the path to ongoing restoration or training in righteousness, as Paul said in 316 of Timothy. Now, we're not there yet, but we are on that track, which is why Paul had so much optimism for troubled people. For example, think about troubled Christians, and, and you know troubled Christians. Maybe you are a troubled Christian. But as you help a troubled Christian, you can be optimistic as you help them. Let me give you an illustration of that. Paul had some troubled Christians in his life. They were the Corinthians. You know of them. Probably the meanest Christians that he encountered during his journeys. Uh, he wrote letters to them, First and Second Corinthians. This is something that he said uh, at the beginning of his first letter in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. I want to share this with you, and I want you to read the optimism, the positive mental attitude. I want you to hear the optimism of Paul as he was trying to help difficult, mean-spirited, unkind Christians. And the reason I want to talk about this is because when God regenerates us, it doesn't make us perfectly whole. We will not experience that until heaven. But once God regenerates us, it does put us on the training path. And sometimes you will run across people on the training path. And if you do not understand the three-part narrative, the uh, creation, fall, and redemption, then you can lose hope for those people that you're trying to help. If they are Christians, then we should never lose hope. And this is what I want you to hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul talking. He says, God... You Corinthians, God will sustain you, Corinthians, to the end. God will sustain you to the end. Do you hear it? Paul was very optimistic about these mean, nasty people. And then he says, you'll be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you may be guilty now. You may be guilty Christians now. You may be falling all over that track of righteousness. But God is faithful, he says, by whom you were called, you got saved, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Think about what Paul said to this corrupt and broken group of Christians. Sin owned them. But Paul knew the end of the story. He understood the three-part narrative. There is creation, there is fall, and there is redemption. So he could say that they would be guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could say it this way. No matter what you're going through or what you're struggling with now, be assured that you will be okay because what God begins, he finishes. And you hear Philippians 1.6 in that as well. God is a completer. He is a finisher. What he has begun, he will most certainly finish. And so for the Christian who has been knocked down, has been corrected, and is on the training path, albeit imperfectly on the training path, we can be very optimistic as we come alongside them because we know how this thing's going to end because they have been born a second time. 
Paul was talking to the Christians in Corinth. He knew God created them in his image, but they had become worthless. Paul also knew they were born again. His robust theology, not his sin-centered, worm-centered theology, it did not deny the extreme realities of the human condition, which is why he was so full of faith in how things would end for the Corinthians. They would be guiltless in eternity. The self-esteem doctrine does not give you that kind of hope. At best, it insists the proponent must pump himself up daily with an I am somebody, I am somebody, I am somebody mantra that propels the Bible rejector, the self-esteemer, out the door with a go-fight-win attitude. He is only as great as his latest victory. Christians are different. We do not base our view of ourselves on our latest and greatest achievements. It's also not based on other people respecting or rejecting us. They can come into our safe space and say unkind things to us, and we are not devastated by it. We don't have to cancel them. We do not live or die by the latest polling data. We build our hope on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. This worldview is not myopic like the self-esteemer but a faith in God that sustains us through this life while preparing us for unending future satisfaction. There is a mystery and there is a misunderstanding in being worthless. It is some of the best news that you will ever hear. That's why when I heard this idea that I was worthless in the way that Ricky Price told me that I was worthless, that was the beginning of the greatest news that you will ever hear. And if we do not know that we are sick, unhealthy, broken, crippled, despairing, and we need a physician, if we don't know that, then we'll continue as blind men groping in the dark for the wall, grabbing anything that will help us to pump us up for just a few moments so that we can feel good about ourselves, as fleeting as that may be. And the self-esteem movement is one of those tricks of their trade. I want to wrap up by asking a few questions. I trust that these questions will encourage you. And by the way, if you're discipling somebody, maybe you can use these CTAs here. There's four of them that I want to share with you. And this will help you to come alongside that individual so that they can work through uh, these things with you. For those of you who do disciple others, pastors, leaders, disciple makers, counselors, please use this as a a homework assignment. This would be an outstanding life project. Uh, this is something that we all need to be immersed in, and we need to understand. As Christians, we need to fortify our minds to make sure that we understand these things. Perhaps answering these questions will help you into a, a mature understanding of, of psychology, meaning the study of the soul. God created the soul, and He's given us the Word concerning the soul, which is the Bible. That is pure psychology, the Bible's version of the soul. And this can help. And so perhaps this could be a life project for you or for those within your sphere of care. Number one, why does Paul's declaration about being worthless come across as so harsh? I think you can answer that question, and I think you would be able to explain that. Uh, but I want to put this in a question because if you are discipling somebody, you would want them to explain to you why it comes across so harsh. 
and compare that most definitely with, well, our culture is the reason. And so hopefully they can give you an in-depth response based on uh, where our culture is today. And then the follow-up is, how, do, how does it sound to you and why? And so you want to move the question from why it sounds so harsh to them and they, those people out there, to why might it sound so harsh to you? If it does sound harsh to you or the person that you are discipling, then there is work to do. And I would ask you to review the things that I've just shared with you. Question number two, why are uh, some of the best news that you'll ever hear that you're in the worthless junkyard of life and cannot do anything uh, cannot do anything about it. Why is that some of the best news? Uh, go back to my car illustration. Imagine that car sitting there rusting away. It's in the junkyard of life. It can't do anything about it. It cannot extricate itself. It cannot walk out of there. It needs for somebody to care for it, to love it to set its eye upon it and say, I want you, and to elect it, to select it, to go in among all of those cars and pick that one out, and then begin the restoration process. We want to make that analogy. We want to apply it to ourselves. Why is that some of the best news that you'll ever hear? Number three, which is more important to you, better self-esteem or the Bible's three-part restoration process. Part one, made in the image of God. Part two, becoming worthless. Part three, the Lord restoring you. Being able to explain that uh, to someone, in fact, it would be good to take these questions and talk to a friend about it and give them your answers. Tell them this is what you think about this. That would be a good exercise. By the way, uh, this is what we do in our mastermind program. It is our all online training program where we teach people these things. We teach them how to become disciple makers. If you're a pastor, a small group leader, ministry leader, if you're a Christian that wants to take your training to the next level, then I would encourage you to check out our mastermind program. One of our programs, this one, is completely supervised. And so that means that we will respond to you in real time and give you feedback. And it will it's a reciprocal training program. And so we will answer your reports that you turn in, and we interact with you throughout the program. It is self-paced. And so you can take as long as you need without procrastinating, and you don't want to do that because, well, that will lose all the effect of accumulative learning. But it is self-paced, so you can weave it into the life that you live. And by the way, it is also 100% online. You never have to travel anywhere. And so consider our Mastermind program. Uh, as we Again, like we like to say, the teacher learns more than the student. And so if you uh, can explain these things, and you, you will be learning these things even more. They, they will sink into your psyche, into your long-term memory. One of the ways that you memorize things is by sharing those things with others as often as you can. Find a friend, corner them, and share these things with them, and that you will begin to own them. That is an excellent memory trick. Finally, number four, how important is it for you to have the praise and appreciation of others? How much do these things manage you? And then would you take the time to describe the person who finds satisfaction in God's favorable opinion of him because of regeneration? You see, if you are in 
beholden to the self-esteem movement, then you always require people uh, to stroke you and to say the right things. Now, what that means is they own you. They are gods, little G-O-Ds. They are big and you are tiny and you need them. The self-esteemer needs people to say the right things, be the right things, do the right things. Self-esteemers are weak people because they're so managed by other people. But if the only opinion in the room that mattered to you was God's opinion of you, meaning you're not managed by whatever anybody says to you because you're not beholding to the self-esteem doctrine. You're beholding to the reality that you were made in the image of God. You became worthless and God regenerated you. That's what bolsters you. That's what solidifies you. That's what gives you stability. That's why you have a sturdy soul. Jesus was this way. The only opinion in the room that managed him was his father's opinion. The only thing he tried to do was to do his father's will. And even when his friends came along like Peter and they were rebuking him, it did not devastate Christ. No, he was a sturdy-souled individual, and he was able to respond with strength and courage and compassion because his friend was falling all over the place in Mark 8, not understanding the purpose of why Christ came as he revealed the messianic secret saying that I have come to die. There's an opinion that will manage us. Everybody is managed by opinions. And so we have to determine whose opinion is going to control us. We have two options. The opinion of God manages us. And by the way, his opinion is always good because when he looks at the Christian, he sees the work of Christ. When he sees the works of his son, whom he is well pleased, then he is pleased with us, not because of any of our works, because all of our works, even the good ones, are filthy rags. But he sees the alien righteousness of Christ in us. He is pleased with us. For by grace we have been saved. And so God has a favorable opinion of us. And we live in the pleasure of his good opinion of us. And we are managed by that opinion, not managed by the opinions of other people. Unfortunately, those who take that other road... And they need people to esteem them. They need people to applaud them. They need to dance on the football field in front of the camera because they need people yelling their praises. We are not that fragile. We're not that weak. We're not that broken. We have been hauled out of the junkyard of life, and we are in a restoration process after our initial regeneration. There is a mystery. There is a misunderstanding about being worthless. People fall all over it. Christians do not because we understand the full meaning of God's Word, and we're living in the third part of that narrative, being restored to God. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.